listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor, and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Jesse and Kate, who are in stage two of the adoption process. Hi, both of you. Hey. Hi. Hiya, thank you so much for joining me. So you've been through the assessment process, I guess, during lockdown, and you're at stage two at the moment. If we rewind a bit, though, can you tell me how you reached the decision to adopt and how you discussed that between you? Well, it was a discussion on, you know, I guess it starts off as a very broad discussion on children in our relationship. So I guess that was our starting point. And then it just evolved in a, you know, when when would we be looking to have children? And then I guess the next step on top of that is how would we have children? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we, we did look into the prospect of IVF. We visited a few clinics. We got all the, the kind of information and all, all the kind of stuff that we do simultaneously whilst looking at adoption. And just through that process, we just, we couldn't find an advantage for us as a family to having a child through IVF, which we know there, there obviously there, there are many, there are many and for many people as to why they might want a biological child. But for us, it didn't seem like an overwhelming positive. And we felt like we had a bigger opportunity to... I don't know, help help a child really and, and support a child or who already existed and it didn't really change how we viewed our family. So we went, we pursued adoption. Yeah, I can understand that. And were you both on board with having children and both on board with adoption as much or was one of you more of a driving force? I, definitely the adoption. I think we were both fairly, there was not one of us that was like, oh, well, actually maybe IVF is where I'd like. It was, I think we very much came to that decision together we both were very pro doing it that way and similarly with having kids it was a conversation that yeah I don't think there was either one of us that was more than the other yeah I always feel like adoption was like the guaranteed it was whether would we pursue an adopted child and a birth child when we looked into the prospect we knew that there are are obviously specific rules around when you can adopt with a birth child and actually whether it's, you know, what impacts this could have on the type of placement you could get and all, all that kind of stuff. So if anything, it kind of became a bit of a, a a con in the IBF column, really, because it was going to impact our ambitions to have an adopted child. Yeah, so it sounds like it was quite a natural progression to deciding that adoption was the thing for you. Did you feel like you already knew a lot about it or were you quite new to it as an idea? I think we had the rose-tinted idyllic <laughs> view of adoption that most people, most, I reckon most people have never actively engaged with it or engaged with any kind of looked-after child, probably has a similar view of what, it, what it's going to be like. But, yeah, the information our adoption agency has given us is, is kind of really set us up for success and they haven't, they have not given us the Disneyland version of adoption at all. <laughs> What did yeah. the Disneyland version look like? I'm curious what you were picturing because I bet it's the same as what I was picturing. What did yeah, it look like? Yeah, oh yeah. all right, I'm going to get this child who is just going to be really grateful of the life I give them. <laughs> They're going to excel, aren't they? They're going to be academically a sport and fantastic. Um, <laughs> it's going to be really grateful that we adopted them. And, and you get, you kind of think that, or you definitely see that portrayed a lot. Or obviously there's the other side of it that they're absolutely going to hit you and venomously search for birth family and 
that's kind of like the the two parallels that are portrayed in sort of <laughs> widespread media <laughs> I recognize that so much yeah because it's like either the dream is either there'll be a child and they'll be sad for a bit maybe like a fortnight and then they'll be fine because I'll have loved them better or like you say that this child will be so unparentable that you will just be living hell for the next 18 years or whatever so yeah I recognize both of those do you feel that the agency did a good job at bringing you to a middle point that was kind of there was enough hope to want to do it and enough realism to know what the challenges might be for sure I, I even think there's there's some stuff that's presented to you that you're like oh I don't know how I feel about that or I didn't realize it was like that that we've we've maybe went away and had a conversation around and then actually when we look at the benefits that you know this brings to the child or actually how much more you these children really need homes I almost think again it's kind of strengthened our, our view on adoption and our kind of passion to to continue really it sounds like your agency judged that line really well actually yeah I, I hope so anyway um <laughs> but I think we've been able to get a lot of information that I think has helped us get to that kind of where we feel that we're quite confident as to we're at the right kind of expectation level and that kind of yeah, and we don't know if it, that's specifically our agency or maybe just the the luck we've had with the people we've dealt with because we've obviously definitely attended sort of prep groups, had conversations with the adopters, and we, we do, don't always feel that that level of knowledge is is sort of consistent. So we've either been really lucky with all the people we've dealt with, or we've been really studious, or a lovely mix of both. But we definitely feel we can settle. <laughs> We, we, we feel confident with what they've told us. We don't feel they've tried to hide anything from us or sugarcoat anything. Um, they also have done a really great job of saying, do you know what, the, the adopted children will come with some additional needs and will come with some additional problems. doesn't mean that they're just not normal, happy children and anything that might impact an adopted child could absolutely impact a child, a birth child that's not undergone any of those traumas and that there is support out there. There are other parents out there and it's not always going to be a pit display. <laughs> yes. And how did you find the assessment process? There was a lot of paperwork. Um, that was our thing at first, because obviously that's the first bit you do. That um, you, Suddenly you get that form and it's like you're writing out your whole entire life story on four different forms. Um, but since then, it's been... I think we both really enjoyed it, getting to do the prep groups and actually just then having the conversations with the social worker rather than it all being very paperwork based it's like you're actually kind of discussing things which so the more latter bit has definitely been yeah in the beginning and I think it's that confidence with those people isn't it because you get that form that's like what is your happiest childhood memory and you're like oh I don't know (laughs) 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 what parent like techniques would you like to keep and you're like oh my god hope my mum doesn't read this um I don't know this person who gets to read it you feel a bit like exposed really I suppose as the kind of journey goes along it's almost like it just becomes a really natural conversations with this person that kind of gets to know you pretty well so free therapy is what we've read and I'll definitely agree with that (laughs) (laughs) yeah some people find it that it's quite a self-reflective process that's quite cathartic and helps them think through where they are and other people sort of feel a pressure to present in quotes perfection or you know and a, a sort of a really idealized response do you know where you sort of fell on that I think at first definitely the wanting to have the idealized response because you know that 
what you put is going to reflect whether or not you get accepted at the end that is kind of like you do want to portray it first when you get it it's like oh I can't put anything that looks negative but then once you look a bit more in it, it's like oh no I need to kind of be honest and it's not necessarily going to be negative because they might say oh actually this is a really good thing that they can then reflect on with their child that they've maybe both experienced or both come across so I think it was kind of a bit of both of like at first you're like oh I can't show anything that's not an idealized view but then you're like oh no this is definitely by being able to do it honestly is kind of very helpful being able to reflect we definitely found that on like day one of our very first prep group we did like it was it was a virtual and it, we did a bit of an introduction on who we were and then at some point on that day we were having a little bit of a discussion around our own upbringings and <laughs> there was a little bit of like language bingo about how many times people introduced themselves of having like stable upbringings with secure attachments and we were like we've all done a little bit of reading and how many- <laughs> Everybody was like trying to wedge in like secure attachment, stability, nurturing into their introductions. <laughs> we were like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> it, it's a, it is a strange process though, isn't it? There were points when, when we were being asked like over and over again, how would you cope with this? How would you cope with that? With all this negative stuff. And we were sort of able to give in quotes the right answer because we could imagine what the right answer was. But at a couple of points, I kept thinking, why are we doing this again? This is sounding more and more horrendous as we go. You know, why are we pursuing this? And we had to keep grounding ourselves in why we were doing it, because I found that the assessment was at points so negative that it was quite difficult to kind of keep focused on what on earth we were doing. Hmm. So um, did you, obviously, you've gone through this process during lockdown. And um, I wonder if that's made you, made it harder for you to form connections with other people at the same stages of the process or how you've done that. I think it definitely has made it harder because we were quite fortunate that we were far enough into lockdown that we could do our prep group over teams. Whereas I think there was groups before us that had no contact with other people. So we were lucky enough in that respect, but um, it's actually only in the last week that we've met anybody other than our social worker in person, which was great to just be able to sit and have a conversation. And there's definitely a bit of a, we've missed out on that throughout the whole process because we've not been able, because it's only now that we've been able to meet people. Um, so I think it has definitely made it harder making connections with people that are in the same point of the process as us that are likely to get kids placed at similar times to us that um, I think we have missed out a bit in that respect. Yeah, because we've like, other than the five of the couples that were on our prep group, and then it, within that, not everyone, you know, you're not naturally going to be best friends with every single person you meet. That's just because they're another adopter. It's kind of like that's our only exposure to kind of other adopters. And we've actually found like New Family Social really helpful in that respect because we, well, we've met people as a result of that, haven't we? Who just kind of were like, where do you live again? And just kind of hijacked us. And, and that's kind of been how we've been navigating adoption just by saying okay you're in a a vague vicinity where we live should we should we grab a coffee (laughs) yeah but I think that's quite good and I think actually um as LGBT people we have that skill anyway don't we you know as as part of a minority community we are quite practiced at finding our people or at least people that we have that thing in common with so actually there's no particular embarrassment about going oh you want to adopt I want to adopt let's be friends and just giving it a go and seeing if there is a friendship to form there and if there is a connection 
Absolutely. We obviously, even just discussing when you when you look at the statistics around sort of same sex adoption, and when you look at it, you know, obviously you're very proud of the one in six. But actually, when we looked at the breakdown of what that one in six, it wasn't there wasn't a very great deal of it that was was women, which then means when we were doing a lot of research initially into because we obviously want to read literature that's about it. We want to we want to find stories for our children. And we, we want to read about other people that kind of went through it. It was, um, we found that when you talk about same-sex families from a female perspective, it's very tailored towards IVF. And you look at it from an adoption perspective, it's very tailored towards men, which obviously we're, we're quite used to that in the world, but it, is, it was quite astonishing to, to find because you almost feel it's, you know, 2021, like why is it still so challenging to, to find yourself represented really? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, we we see that in the stats, you say, that more male couples are adopting than female couples are. And obviously, women have other routes to parenthood. So you yourselves were saying, oh, we investigated IVF. And so, you know, for a gay male couple, short of surrogacy with all the costs and so on of that, the other options are not lining up in quite the same way. So there are fewer. But you're right, that representation is is quite difficult to see sometimes. So you must have an idea in mind, I guess, at this stage, now that you're at stage two, what sort of family you're looking for. So are you looking for like one child or two? What are you thinking? What are your thoughts in that direction? (laughs) Well, (laughs) again, similarly, when we started off, it was like, give us all your children. Like, (laughs) You have that session that talks about the reasons why children go into care and you start looking at care studies. It's almost like... Gosh, can we put shells? Can they live on shells? You do. You just kind of go through that real empathy of just wanting to take everybody. And we, I'm probably going to say this a lot. We had a really good chat with these with these guys on a coffee morning who had um, siblings. They'd been adopters for for many many years. The children were sort of edging into teens, and he's just like, "You need to stop doing that. You need to think about what your family looks like, and you just need to have that discussion and." You, you need to be comfortable saying no to the adoption agency because if that's not what you're happy with, then you're not going to be happy with what your family's going to look like um, and that's going to massively impact not just your own happiness but the child. And it was just like some really great sage advice that I guess when you start talking to people about adoption, it's like not everyone wants to kind of give you the, you know, have you <laughs> it's lovely what you're saying, but it's not really right reality kind of conversation. So I really valued that. And I guess that has helped us refine what we want. Yeah, so we we initially thought about looking at children, but the more we looked into it and the potential additional needs, we thought that even though long-term we envisage that our family will be bigger than one child, that if we could start with one and then we would have the ability to support them through any needs they had, whereas if we had a second and then found that one or both of them had more needs than expected, it would become unfair on the other child that one of them had to have more attention, for example. So decided that one is where we're looking. And um, preschool really is the kind of age range we're looking at, two or three yeah, similarly, we've we've had we've had a great opportunity to have some lovely conversations, and actually, we we just had a conversation over the weekend with with a couple who's recently got their little boy into nursery, and it was a really 
really great perspective because that process of like welcoming a child into your family, that whole point going around foster parents and gradually taking over the parenting mirrors very closely to what it's like trying to get a child into nursery. <laughs> and they were telling us about how obviously this was a really traumatic experience because he had convinced himself he was moving into nursery and we were just like, oh my God, that is so obvious. Like, how did we not see it? And we were like, say we, we were pushing our age limits up a little bit because, child, you know, it was like, you know, five, still quite young, but we, we've kind of came to the realization that we, we definitely want a, a good, a year with them before they go off to school so that we can really judge um, how they're settling in, what their needs are before they're faced with that, like, that sort of trauma of kind of having to get them into school because we, we appreciate that, if they have, um, they, they, we can't obviously have choices to hold children back, but obviously as any parent, you kind of wouldn't want to do that unless that was absolutely in their best interest. So for us, we've kind of, three or under is kind of like where we're hovering. We, we've got leeway in that, of course, if we just see this child and, you know, the stars align, if, the, if you will, then of course we would expand that. But we, we know that three or under is kind of where we're at. Yeah, that sounds like it's, the right fit for you in terms of how you're describing that you arrived at that decision and things have you both got lots of childcare experience or is this kind of new for you fairly limited we have no um like work wise experience or anything but we do have several nieces and nephews between us that we have experience of babysitting and taking them out for the afternoon and things like that so we we feel like actually for some people that don't have do it for work we have reasonable levels experience until you then speak to the social workers and it's like is this enough have we got enough we so we I think we have an okay amount but not a lot yeah we've obviously just got the normal amount of a level if we hand them back at the end of the day (laughs) (laughs) yeah one of my colleagues says that um he, he and his partner were asked to get some more childcare experience. And so they borrowed quite a decent sized group of children, I think. It was like three kids or something off, off a friend or some willing random who was willing to give them three kids for a weekend. And he said, but it wasn't real at all because he said they laid on treasure hunts and cinema nights and popcorn and walks and swimming and everything. He said it was like Disneyland for the weekend. So these kids had a perfect time. They decided they would not say no to these kids at any point because they wanted them to be happy for the whole weekend. And these kids went home glowing and they went home, you know, absolutely exhausted, but essentially with no idea what it's like to actually parent or care for a child because what they'd done was run like a children's entertainment camp for a weekend, essentially in their house, you know. And he was saying about the falseness of that, of not that it's not valuable, but just that it's not it's not relentless in the way that parenting or caring for a child is, you know, and I think it's the relentlessness that gets you eventually. Yeah, and I think sometimes that's like a little bit of the emotional roller coaster of adoption because we, we think our, our experience is, is pretty positive. We've got no gripes, but sometimes you have that conversation around, well, what's your childcare experience? And you kind of just want to turn around and go, the exact same of any first time parent, which is, <laughs> yeah. You know, my sister, like one of my sisters just had a child this week and another one is pregnant, and we're just like, no one's asking them what their childcare experience is or what they've done. And we're like, we've, practically bought our amazon like and where we're meeting with strangers we're joining groups and yeah. you know and it's sometimes you're like well i feel we can you know we can prepare the basic needs but to your point then you you end up going around doing sort of a bit of a pantomime version of what what parenting is which like you say it's not realistic so we appreciate why they do it and we're, we're very sort of reflective saying 
if I was in charge of handing out children, if you will, I 100% would be asking people to get experience as well. But on the receiving end of it, sometimes you're a bit like, why is this unrealistic expectation being placed on me when I'm already doing X, Y, Z extra as it is? Yeah, no, I completely understand that. Yeah, it's um, and it's difficult at the moment, of course. We've touched lockdown already, but you know, it's virtually impossible to come up with this childcare experience if you don't have kids in the family. And actually, even if you do, at points over the last year, you couldn't have borrowed them. So it has been a bit of a difficult bar to clear, I think, for people in the last year. Yeah, like I say, we our social workers been really positive about everything we said, and and I guess I come from quite a large family, and I have many younger brothers and sisters. So, and she's been very very good at just kind of pulling out any experience you might have had just from what across our years, and I guess we're we're also at that age where our friendship circle is predominantly sort of starting or have already started their own families. So we don't feel disadvantaged, but when you get that initial question, you're like. We don't have children really pop it all over dinner because that would be weird. <laughs> you can borrow my children literally any time. I will ship them. <laughs> so are you at a stage where you're starting to make practical preparations in your lives to receive a child? I know it's difficult when you don't know what child it'll be or indeed when it'll be, but I wonder if you're starting to make some changes that allow for this child to arrive. Um, we've definitely had discussions. And as you've kind of kind of pointed out, it's on a broad spectrum of needs from a zero to sort of three, potentially four-year-old child. Um, we <laughs> we actually used those secure latches that came with IKEA furniture for the first time in our lives. Um, <laughs> that was like the big bolt. We like, right, we'll do this. This is a visual thing that no same person ever does. But as parents, we should secure that cabinet. So we did that. But then, other than that, we've got an Amazon wish list on the go. But we were kind of pretty adamant not to, because similarly to if you just found out you're pregnant, it's not advised to go out and sort of kit out a nursery. We don't want to get into that psychological space of like creating a shrine for a child that's not here. Um, and also, I guess we literally have no idea what the tastes, likes, dislikes of a child's going to be, and they're already going to have them. So we, I think we've been quite reserved in doing that. Um, we've definitely scouted our area out, got our eye on some nurseries, some schools, and that kind of like some logistical things. Yes. I feel like until we start kind of, you know, almost kind of at the point where they're saying, right, this is going to be your child. We kind of don't want to be going out decorating a bedroom or, or anything like that for our own sanity, really. Yes, and I can understand that. And also, there's a vast difference between a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, how much practical stuff you can do is quite tricky. And they sometimes come with a ton of stuff. You know, it really depends what's been going on for them before. But um, our child arrived with a lot of things. And it was almost overwhelming, the influx of this stuff, because obviously we hadn't chosen any of it. And he wasn't actually attached to a lot of it, but it took on this sort of status of relics and things that must not be got rid of or anything like that and after a year we said actually yeah it's going to be okay we will keep the things that are either from his birth family or that he's been particularly attached to but we did allow ourselves to get rid of some of the other stuff because it it was part of the process I think of him becoming our child was allowing ourselves to do sort of a process of claiming which I don't want him to sound like an object but just a process of this is now, he's in our family and these are things that 
we've given to him and stuff. So some of it is kept and some of it's kept very safely and all that. But some of it we did allow ourselves to say, actually, we don't have to keep all 900 of these dinosaurs or whatever it is, you know, because he's just not playing with them. He's not interested in them. They're bits of plastic. We don't need to keep them forever, you know. So it's a difficult judgment call, though. Yeah, the temptation to get lost in a spiral of like TPs and dinosaurs is definitely there. Uh, we def we we have to mute ourselves a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it could be fun though. That bit's really nice. <laughs> so, um, how are your families and friends and support network approaching this? Have they done some reading themselves, or do you feel that they'll be aware enough of what they need to know? How's that going? I think I don't know how much research they've done independently. But we found a book that was aimed at um, adoption for grandparents so that we bought two copies and sent them to both of our families, which then got passed around our siblings. Um, Our social worker ran a friends and family event. So I think they have done their own research, but we've also kind of like given them research that we wanted them to do as well to make sure that even if they hadn't done much or any themselves, we knew that they all had some kind of they'd done some training about it they had some information they had their expectations weren't what they were when we first spoke to them about it which were you know similar to our pre-looking into adoption you have that idea of it so they and we've talked to them enough about it every time we have seen our social worker and something else has come up we've talked to our families so even if they've not done the research through the conversations that we've had with them it's um built up so I think they all are at a fairly good level of kind of information and expectations around the whole yeah and I think we're doing well we feel we're doing a good job of like having those conversations before we even have a child around even just as simple as well we've we've kind of came to the decision that we're not going to tell people the reasons why our child is being put for adoption unless there's a you know a critical need for someone to know about it um, we'd already kind of had that conversation with ourselves and then through one of the prep sessions uh, we had a conversation with a doctor who'd made the same decision and, and she was very straightforward saying that it's not my story it's my son's story until he's at an age where he understands it no one else gets to know it unless it's you know critical to something yes. and because we're still in the hypothetical of, of a child we're able to have those conversations with our wider family and our friends so that they already know that that's what we're going to do so when we get that child and they start maybe to have that curiosity, they already either know not to ask us or they can already kind of pretty anticipate that we're not going to share that information, which we found to be really, really useful um, that we get to kind of talk out loud about what our plans are because even things like therapeutic parenting is it's, you know something that our adoption agency is massive into and we found it to be wonderful and we're, we're excited to kind of like, t- like take that on board. But even just kind of having those conversations with our parents and our siblings who have their own children about how we might do things just a little bit different and the benefit it's going to bring to our child as a result or why we feel it's the right decision, just so that they're not sat there thinking, who are these people? What do they say to their child? You know, like, <laughs> and because we both have a child right there right now, it's kind of like everyone kind of just goes, yes, yes, and agrees with it. So that even if they maybe don't agree with it in the moment or they just or they have a bit more curiosity around what's going on, they've kind of can at least reflect on a conversation where we went, yeah, we are going to maybe isolate ourselves a bit and maybe not tell you this. They're already kind of aware of that. That sounds like you've done some really good prep around that. One of the things that we tended to do is answer in a way that's so vague as to not be an answer. It sounds like an answer, but it isn't really. So it's something we would say something like, uh, his birth family weren't able to look after him. Mm. 
and that's it. So it sounds like you've answered the question, but you haven't. They actually have no useful information from that. And it's not too difficult to then change the subject or say, oh, lots of reasons. But anyway, you know, and just to to go to get away from the topic a little bit, really. But yeah, absolutely. People do seem to ask really blatantly. And I think as well, often people, it's not always people you know well. It's people that you sort of semi-know who can ask some really personal stuff Mm. or say some really daft stuff. So I find that people split into these camps of either they want you to tell them the fairy tale, the one that we all kind of naively believed at the start. And the fairy tale is, my child arrived on the Tuesday and by the Friday he was completely over all trauma and now is happy and I love him very deeply and we will be fine forever. They want the fairy tale. Or they will tell you a horror story. So they'll say, my neighbour's kid was adopted. Yeah, he Mm. just killed three people in a shopping centre. You know, you're like, oh my God. And so, you know, they'll tell you this horror story and then you leave you with it. And really, I found initially both of those really difficult because it took me a while to settle into our adoption. So the fairy tale one was really hard because I knew that I was failing at that. I felt that I was failing at that. But equally, the, you know, I've met an adopted child once and they were a complete nightmare story is also horrifying. So it just kind of pads out your nightmares, all this stuff. And in the end, I've just kind of put up a, a glass wall to that sort of thing and just let it sort of wash over me because what can you do with that story? It's not at all helpful. You can't you can't necessarily prevent that. You're doing your best. But it is it is an odd thing that you become slightly public property and there are sort of expectations that you'll participate in either fairy tale stories or horror stories enthusiastically. And it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit odd to know really what to do with it. Or even just people wanting to kind of like... I guess ally with you by maybe having derogatory comments around birth families and I guess you, you do go through this emotional roller coaster around your feelings around the origin you know where, where your children are coming from and what's happened to them and you know you, you kind of you read a lot of case studies and stuff like that and you're just like oh my god why have these people been allowed to get to this point and then you know you really have that humbling moment where you just have that realization that happy sane comfortable confident well-adjusted people don't don't behave like this and are able to take care of children which means you you then start thinking oh you know what this this person here could easily be in the care system or this person was you know there's undergone some of this themselves or you understand that there's trauma there or they're just not capable of it and then in your head you're just like I can't hate this person or I can't have any negative feelings towards them you know you can only kind of wish them well and health yes no I knew your child but you 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 kind of go through that realization that there's a person there that kind of still needs support and recognition. And I guess you kind of get that empathy through this process. And as an outsider that maybe has had no, no kind of knowledge of adoption, it's very easy to just villainize birth families for not being able to look after these children. And I kind of, we don't really want to engage in those kind of conversations either because, you know, our child will have their own feelings and thoughts on their birth family and, we don't think it's our job to tell them that they should hate them or we should or to tell them that they should love them. We, we think it's our job that they get, that they feel loved and supported by us and we should explain to them in a timely manner the facts of the situation. Um, but we shouldn't be there just going, oh, they're horrible people and aren't you so lucky that you know any of them and we definitely don't want anyone else in our circle doing the same thing. Yeah, I agree with that um, completely. It's... It's, it is quite a difficult line to walk sometimes is to explain it well enough that it justifies why they couldn't stay there, the child, mm-hmm. but equally that isn't demonising and horrifying in a way that isn't warranted. 
because yeah we met our child's birth mum and the word that really was just sprang to mind in enormous neon letters was vulnerability you know this wasn't someone who was calculating or cruel or anything she she was lovely and she was desperately vulnerable and that's how she ended up where she did that's how a lot of people end up where they do it isn't it isn't about malice it's just about you know being very vulnerable falling through the system being sort of used and abused themselves and then end up in a situation that they can't possibly cope with and don't possibly have the resources or the help to be able to cope with may never be able to cope with even with the help you know um and yeah it's, it's a difficult sort of one to explain sometimes so given the stage that you're at so you're at stage two at the moment so you've got a way to go but you're getting through it I just wonder if people are listening to this who are thinking about starting out I wonder what your advice would be and what you perhaps wish you'd known at the start of the process or wish you'd done Research is definitely my recommendation. I We feel really confident and really prepared in our conversations because we went, read widely around it and patience, I guess, because we came into this with an anticipation it was going to take a fair while, which means we're, we're kind of just nicely going along the process we don't feel sort of like we're missing out or something's not happening happy enough we definitely have had some conversations with um, other adopters who you know next week's not soon enough for the next meeting kind of thing and and I think it's a it, then the reality of you know what just having that meeting or getting past that panel doesn't guarantee a child the next day and it can be quite a I guess an emotional turmoil for yourself if you yeah, don't give it the time it needs to be what's what it needs to be. Yeah, I think research was my big one as well because there were so many times that we'd go into our prep training and they'd tell us things and it was just like, well, there'd be questions asked and we were like, that's definitely stuff we've come across and they'd mention things that we'd already had the conversations about. So it was going into those things and feeling already prepared and just having them kind of confirm things for us rather than, spending all the training learning new things it was I think it put us in a really good position that we always felt kind of ready and the conversations were we were able to properly engage with it because we actually had already had a lot of those conversations ourselves before um attending those well it sounds like both of you are going to be so awesome at this I mean you sound really well prepared and really pragmatic and balanced and all of that so I'm sure you're going to be fabulous (laughs) I hope so best of luck with it and maybe you'll come back in a year's time or something and tell us you know what happened for you at the next step really I think everyone would love to hear that I'd like to thank my guests today Jesse and Kate if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends follow us on twitter at lgbt adopt foster and on facebook search new family social all one word visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea.